Hello, hello, and welcome back to the 18th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. The round of 16 is now over, and the quarterfinals are set. There were no massive shocks in the previous round, with the exception of Morocco, knocking one of the favourites in Spain out of the tournament and cementing their place in the final eight. There are some tasty-looking fixtures on show, and in this episode of the podcast, we will preview all the tactics from the games between Croatia and Brazil, which is the early kickoff on Friday, as well as the gargantuan clash between the Netherlands and Argentina. As Louis van Gaal's Orange look to take revenge on Lionel Messi's side for knocking them out of the semi-finals in 2014. We will also be previewing the tactics from Saturday's tasty-looking matchups between Portugal and Morocco and England versus France, while having a wider discussion about the quarterfinals as a whole. Thankfully, to help me preview all the action, I am joined by Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondelo. But before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds on the betting market regarding each team. And so we ask that you make sure to gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board and also make sure that you are over 18 and that you comply with the regulations of your country. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, thank you so much for joining me today to preview some gorgeous looking fixtures that will take place this weekend. But first... We'll start with the breaking news as of this morning that Luis Enrique has stood down from his post as the Spanish national team manager following their premature exit, I think it's fair to say, from the World Cup, having lost on penalties to Morocco. Of course, Luis Enrique was also in charge last year at Euro 2020, and they reached the semi-finals, which was a pretty decent result. After the game against Costa Rica, they won 7-0 at this World Cup, and people thought, without doubt, they were one of the favourites. I mean, they looked scintillating. They had a very a club feel about them in terms of their, their style, the probably only true tactical identity really at the World Cup. Um, so it was really impressive to see. Then they faced Morocco, who have conceded just one goal uh, this season, which was uh, an own goal against Canada. You know, the only people who can score against Morocco are Morocco themselves. Lucas, I'll come to you then on, on, on Luis Enrique's time in charge. Is it... Is it... Fair to say it's been a failure, is that a little too harsh? Well, I believe he did something interesting, which was, you know, trying to give an identity to this team, which is something we haven't really seen mm-hmm. in the World Cup and pretty much with international teams in these days, because not only teams play, you know, not very often, you also have a situation of some some styles that are very different these days, and um, I believe that uh, Spain had some very clear problems to create chances in spite of great possession and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. if you consider for the federations themselves how hard it is to attract talent these days, because even for England, for example, Southgate became a name, uh, you know, a big name during this job. He certainly wasn't a strong name. By the time he was appointed and by the time England didn't do really well in the beginning with him. Mm. So, you know, attracting talent with the kind of salaries that federations are ready to pay. I think Spain was even lucky to have a strong name like him. And well, the uh, Champions League winner at the end of the day, you know, won a treble with Barcelona in 2015. And, and obviously won the, one of the best managers in the world, of course, that Spain got. And unfortunately, it didn't quite end well. Yeah, and, you know, coaches that get to be 
protagonists in the Champions League oftentimes don't even want to be involved in with the, the, the international teams mm -hmm. because of the financial side of that. So uh, I think it's a natural step for Spain to look, you know, for a replacement that is, you know, in line with the, with the young guys and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think, you know, not just the financial side, a lot of managers, and it always brings you back to an interview that Jose Mourinho did before he actually went to Tottenham Hotspur in 2019. I believe it was with Sky Sports, and they asked the, they asked him about taking the Portuguese national team. Uh, you know, would he be willing to be the successor of Fernando Santos, essentially? And he replied something like, um, I'm not quite ready for international football yet. I, I, I want to be, you know, in club football where you're constantly doing something, you're constantly involved, you're constantly taking matches, training, you know, um, and pre-match analysis, post-match analysis, you know, so the international football, obviously it's, it's more diluted than that. You don't, it's probably not as hands-on as club football would be. So, and also on top of that, you don't get to implement your tactical, your perfect tactical identity or your philosophy on an international side because you have so much, You've so little time, I suppose, with your players, and you also have a blend of players coming from a whole host of teams that are coached a different way and coached to play a different way. And I think that's what made Luis Enrique's team so special is that they felt like a club. I think I want to ask you now, though, as well, just before we move on from it, um, he 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 was heavily criticised in Spain, especially from the kind of Madrid side of, of things, Real Madrid fans, essentially, for his... He left out several huge players, I suppose, is the best way to put it, in order to form a team that he could use kind of to play his own perfect style of football, that possession-based style. And he left names. like The biggest one, of course, was captain, leader, legend, Sergio Ramos, he left out. Do you think that was one of the massive reasons why, I suppose, he, he essentially failed because he didn't have the apart from Sergio Busquets, he didn't really have that experience within the team of of leadership, really, because, I mean, Ramos has won everything, World Cup, Euros, Champions League, La Ligas. Well, I believe that it's complicated because in Spain, it's hard not to take sides. And even if you're not taking sides at a conscious level, sometimes it drives down to subconscious, you know, taking sides and, and all these things. Are complex and and the situation with Sergio Ramos, especially as you have twenty six names to a squad these days, it kind of feels like he was it was personal if you if you will, in this sense because okay I agree that he hasn't seen much action with a, a PSG these days because of the long injuries and stuff like that but still um, that kind of you know rings a bell to me with the whole discussion of Dani Alves in Brazil whether he should be in in the team or not and in my opinion from the beginning in the case of Dani Alves he should have been called you know for the coaching staff not as a player because he he was taking a you know a spot of someone that could be useful but in Spain I think the discussion is a lot more complicated and related to the whole you know Spain versus Catalonia the, problems if you will in terms of sport and of course Luis Enrique himself does have a bit of a, a history with Los Blancos essentially I mean he was a former player of Real Madrid and then of course was at Barcelona then too in the Euros I don't think I, th I think in the last Euros he didn't bring a single Real Madrid player which again was even worse than this time I believe this time he brought Danny Carvajal at least 
Um, you touched on the point there of Danny Alves. Danny Alves, while he, I do tend to agree that maybe he should have been brought as a coach, fair enough, just to stop him taking up an extra spot in the team. He would bring so much experience to that that side, especially with younger players and players who are less experienced, you know, and 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 someone you can trust, a leader in the dressing room, even if they're not playing. We wouldn't see his impact in the dressing room, whereas the same with Spain, we wouldn't see Sergio Ramos's impact in the dressing room. Like even if he's not playing for PSG, even if he's not starting for Spain at this World Cup, he would have had a massive impact, especially on the younger players. Ultimately, again, I, I, I'm kind of fed up saying on this podcast, hindsight is twenty twenty. If if Spain win on penalties, we're not talking about this. We're we're discussing how they can be Portugal. Ultimately, ultimately, we're not. Spain are out of the World Cup and Luis Enrique is now gone. Luis de la Fuente, who did an amazing job with the under-19s, under-21s and under-23s. I believe in 2019 he won the under-21s uh, European Championships, which had a sensational side. I think uh, Marco Asensio was in that side, Danny Olmo, I believe, as well. So it's a really um, he's done a really good job and he has now been given the reins as the national team coach to try his hand with the, the, the first team. So we'll move on, though, to the first previewing or previewing the first game of the quarterfinals and between Croatia and and Lucas you'll be happy to know Brazil <laughs> tell me tell me then about the kind of the odds in this game I suppose because Brazil are the favorites to win the tournament outright last time we spoke I'd imagine they're favorites in this game but are they heavy favorites Yes, and uh, you can say that for the first time, I, I agree that Brazil can be considered clear favorites because of some factors, including fitness. Brazil was lucky enough to be the last team to play in all group stage fixtures as well as the the round of sixteen, you know, dates, which means now they have a situation in which Croatia also faced a tough uh, extra time against Japan. And we can say that, you know, the most important thing for Croatia is the fitness of uh, Modric, which is, you know, potentially problematic due to his ages. I think saying he's prone to injury is a bit of a stretch, but he's also not, you know, one of those players that never get even a cold that is always, you know, available. But, uh, yeah, I think Brazil is really confident after, you know, the last result against South Korea. But uh, as I have said, as I have said previously, I have some concerns in terms of uh, how the defense will work in practice with uh, a team that, you know, has never really played this way with Militão as a right back and Danilo as a left back against, you know, what decent team like Croatia, not like South Korea wasn't a decent team, but we can say it's it's a stronger team. And right now, the, the odds for Brazil are on average 1.37, which is a bit of a stretch in my opinion. I guess something between 1.6 to 1.8 would be a little bit more like fair. But uh, considering, you know, how Croatia may be a little frail in terms of fitness, I wouldn't recommend any kind of bet here. Lucas, Croatia, I think it's fair to say just about got out of the group phase. You know, they, they drew goalless with Belgium. I don't think they were excellent against Belgium. I think Belgium could have easily won the game 2 or 3 nil had Romelu Lukaku had his shooting boots on. I see Brazil smashing South Korea uh, a few days ago. 
and they looked scintillating. What kind of, I, I suppose the best way to, to ask this is, what kind of lessons can Croatia learn then from not only the Belgium game that they were ripped open on several occasions, but also the South Korea's getting thrashed essentially by the 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 most coveted side in World Cup history. Well, I think that uh, something that will suit, uh, you know, the needs of uh, Croatia would be to, to kind of analyze the game the way, you know, batters do, which is more or less like this. How did Brazil get to trash South Korea with a 4-0 score by, by half time? And the answer is the goal happened with six minutes, the first one. It kind of erased any kind of pressure that Brazil had to perform well because, you know, the last game that Brazil had won was against Switzerland, which was a pretty poor game, a game that Brazil took a lot of time before scoring. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of, you know, fear about what could happen without Neymar. And um, in a way, you can say it wasn't a typical situation in which South Korea didn't have, you know, a chance at all. I think that uh, it unfolded pretty well to Brazil. But as I've said, the defense of Brazil hasn't been tested for real yet. And uh, I believe that Croatia needs to make this game uh, a wise game in terms of fitness, I guess. Uh, they should explore something that Ancelotti does with Real Madrid, which is using... Modric after they score in, in a more central midfielder role and not make him, you know, run more than he can. Otherwise, mm -hmm. if they pick, you know, if Modric picks it up an injury, like with five minutes, I think their hopes are pretty gone. At least the way I see their team. Which means, I guess, that they shouldn't fear Brazil that much because it was, you know, a big score against South Korea. That unfolded in a way that uh, it, I believe it's to say it was luck. It, it's a bit of a stretch, but uh, let's say that confidence had a way to to blossom in this game for the Brazilian young attackers that didn't happen in other games in this World Cup. So I wouldn't be afraid, but I would make a smart game try to focus on counterattacks and try to use, you know, the older names of Croatia in, in a smart way because of the, you know, difference in time of resting for this game. That's how I see it. Modric, even though he's 37, has been Croatia's best player at the World Cup, in my opinion, next to Joshua Gavardiol, who's been excellent also, I, I must add to that. But Modric is playing in quite a deep role as well. He's dropping deep to essentially help collect the ball and progress it for Croatia because he's one of the only players really that can do that for Latko Dalic's side. I also think age kind of showed a little bit, especially in the last two matches against Belgium and definitely against Japan, where after the penalty shootout, he was just constantly bending over at his knees, kind of trying to catch his breath. And it's completely understandable. I mean, 37-year-olds has just played that much football. You know, it's insane how important he is for Croatia, despite his age. So, I think one lesson they can certainly take from the match against South Korea too was that in that four four two block that South Korea deployed, they were so open. And and of course, you were right when Vinicius Junior scored the opening goal. South Korea almost fell up, fell to pieces. They there was just so much space for that Brazilian attack to run into. I mean, they were constantly overloading South Korea's defensive line. 
with players like Neymar, like Vinicius Junior, like Richarlison, Lucas Paquette, they're making deep runs. So I think Croatia just, while it sounds redundant, they just need to keep it tight for the first 10, 20 minutes. Don't concede that first goal. Because if you concede that first goal, you have to open up then. And that's where Brazil will pick you off and essentially kill you <laughs> and book their place in the semifinals. We will move on then to the later game uh, tomorrow, which is a very, very tasty-looking tie between the Netherlands and Argentina. Of course, the Netherlands under Louis van Gaal will be looking for revenge for 2014 when Argentina beat them on penalties to progress to the final, which they ultimately lost to Mario Götze's Germany. I was not so impressed with Argentina against Australia. I think they, the idea that their only game plan is to give it to Messi is probably tongue-in-cheek. That's not quite accurate, you know, there are still very clear patterns of play, but they don't seem to work. And then ultimately, when Messi does get an opportunity, he scores. So, again, I think Australia could have easily, easily progressed past Argentina if it wasn't for the one gem, essentially, that Argentina have. Lucas, what number in terms of favourites are Argentina right now, then? It's interesting because a few days ago, uh, the the odds were pretty much level, meaning there was a small difference uh, in the markets that considered Argentina more of a favorite. But now this difference has increased significantly. You can pretty much bet on on the Netherlands being, you know, underdogs, but not much. You have this Asian handicap line, 0.25 with odds in, in the house of 1.95, which means that um, if you bet on them and there is a draw, you win you know, half the bets, around 50% of profit. If they win the game, you, you win the entire bet. And if they lose, you lose the bet. And I believe this is a leveled game. And, and when the game is level, you should expect level odds. And that is not what's happening. So uh, I would recommend, you know, uh, a bet on the Netherlands with these odds right now because, uh, you know, for more elegant systems, you can even cash out before the end of the game. I, I didn't see Argentina, you know, just fine odds that uh, make them favorites. I think there's the messy, you know, phenomenon in the markets. and But collectively, I see a bit more of organization and, and a fast way to counterattack in the Netherlands that, I, you know, in an efficient way that I don't mm. see with Argentina. Uh, just keeping on that kind of topic, why why are the Netherlands then underdogs essentially in this game? Because I would argue they haven't, or I, I would argue that Argentina haven't faced more difficult opponents as of yet. I would argue that the Netherlands have looked far more structured, albeit against Ecuador, they were quite, they were quite poor, although they got a one-all draw. Is it to do with the, I suppose, the past history of the World Cup? The Argentina have two World Cup wins. They beat Netherlands under Louis van Gaal in 2014, whereas the Netherlands got haven't got to a final since 2010. They've never won a World Cup, etc. Or is it essentially just the Messi factor? I believe it's the Messi situation because... Independent markets, you know, the odds pretty much reflect the money that's coming in. And if the lines were closer to the level, as I was mentioning, and, and if it dropped in the case of Argentina, it means there's money coming in into the bookies 
to Argentina. And the World Cup is one of those complicated tournaments because you have professional bettors and professional companies betting millions on, on the games, but you also have, you know, billions coming from, you know, the average Joe that is just, you know, placing a bet for fun or something mm -hmm. like that. So we have a mix of the educated opinions and, and stakes and something that is completely recreational, which makes it hard to read the uh, you know, not exactly to read, but the situation in the betting markets, and this is interesting, it's not a reflection of reality. It's an, it's a reflection of the perception of those putting money on those things. So the, those are two entirely different things, mm -hmm. meaning that uh, there could be some value based on this kind of mistake in the markets, which is the case here, in my opinion. I guess you could bet on the Netherlands, and if they're doing well in the beginning. You could even cash out with, you know, and oppose the bets. So that's pretty much it. I think the market is seeing massive scoring goals, and uh, the Nenders just don't have a player like him. And uh, this could, in the minds of some people, make Argentina a stronger team. But I, I am a big believer in teamwork in in football, especially in the midfield. You must make things happen by building it with the team spirit and, and Argentina is a bit I won't say lousy it's a strong word I'll go more like with inaccurate when trying to make quick transitions and uh, in my opinion that could you know cost them a lot of uh, opportunities during the game against a team like the Netherlands Why is public opinion different than to the betting markets because ultimately the public are betting on these games and Surely their opinion would kind of, or maybe I'm wrong, their opinion would surely represent the bets they're putting on. Like if they believe Netherlands are the underdogs, they'd put a bet on Argentina to win, etc. Yeah, I, I meant more like uh, actual situation technically. That's more like I meant than, than a, you know, the okay. sports facts that are happening. And they, they are not perfectly you know mirrored in in the markets and that's why professional bettors have you know an opportunity and a job in the first place because mm -hmm. if i'm right here then in the situation that the netherlands are not that worse compared with argentina and if i'm constantly right about my you know my opinions at the right odds too because you can't be right but to get low odds because that would ultimately become a problem in the long run. That's a different discussion. But for example, I'm not really uh, betting much in the World Cup. I'm focused more on writing at this moment. But I have my observations. And, uh, you know, in all games that I felt like there was some betting value, there were six games so far. It was a bet for France uh, to win the game against uh, Denmark when it was 1-1, that game to have three goals at that stage of the game, and a few other bets that uh, would amount to 24% of profit right now, because mm -hmm. I won three and I lost three, but I pick up very high odds, which is something that professionals do. So people that are full-time bettors, they probably would have had something in the house of 20 to 30 bets in this tournament, so essentially, professional bets, or at least profitable betting, is about you know being more right than the market odds, and that's uh, the situation. And often you have 
crazy stuff in the markets that is fueled by you know average joe's betting you know close to pubs and street shops just for fun or for example accumulator bets or something that professionals mm -hmm. never like for some like 20 games together to 50 events this stuff is you know completely surreal for a better that is that takes this seriously because it's it just doesn't happen let's let's stay with with this explanation for this channel at this moment yeah well in terms of accumulators or actors as they're known i suppose in the uk and the republic the republic of ireland you know people will put those bets on because there's very little to lose maybe you'd put a euro or two on and this the the, the winnings are sensational i mean the the profit you would win back but of course the likelihood of that is so thin that you will more than likely lose your money but it's okay because you've only lost a quid or two just before we move on to saturday's fixtures satish prasad who's been on the podcast several times throughout the tournament wrote an excellent piece previewing the game between the netherlands and argentina he spoke about how the netherlands can essentially I suppose nullify Argentina's attack by stopping Messi, which sounds insane because you know it's not as if nobody's tried that before. But he also talked about how Argentina can control the Netherlands' excellent, I suppose, in transition, which you saw against the USA. So if you want to know about all the, I suppose, the, the little tactical details ahead of this match, check out that piece on the Total Football Analysis site. It's a really, really excellent piece by Satish. We will move on, though, now, though, to Mar Morocco and Portugal. Uh, are Morocco the, the biggest underdogs in the quarterfinals, Lucas? Actually, in the betting markets, it's Croatia, and that has to do a bit of, with a hype around Brazil, and, and mm -hmm. that's... Uh, uh, personally, I mean, if I had to you know, guess the market odds at gunpoint without knowing how things are going to be. Because if you get a professional trader to do their jobs, it's it's for, you know, they can't look at the odds before making their own math because they would be biased and this, there are proof that these, these things happen. So I, I wouldn't guess that Croatia had bigger odds than Morocco because... Even though Portugal is naturally, you know, a favorite here, I think the way Brazil is considered, like, deep, I haven't seen odds that low for Brazil in the World Cup, I guess. Even against Serbia, so it's like, there is a strong exaggeration in terms of uh, this, this game against uh, Croatia, meaning that uh, Morocco is like the second... Biggest underdog in the quarterfinals, but uh, that's... Well, I suppose they, they topped the group with Croatia, you know, so it, it probably makes a little bit of sense, considering Brazil are the favourites. Morocco and Croatia were both in the same group, and Croatia finished just about second, whereas Morocco won twice and drew one and finished on seven out of nine points. Yeah, but we're talking about almost 100% of difference. Croatia has odds of 9 on average to 1, and Morocco has 5.62 on average against Portugal. So it's like, it's way too much. Brazil has 1.37 to win against Croatia, while the fair odd, which is the, the mathematically correct odd, we know advantage or you know uh, the correct price mm -hmm. it should be in my opinion between 1.6 to 1.8 so there is 
uh, even if they were like a bit more of, of an underdog compared with uh, Morocco, it's still uh, a discrepancy and market anomaly in my opinion. What I will be looking out for in the Morocco and Portugal match is essentially how Morocco deal with Portugal's rotations. I think uh, I have a tweet going out on the TFA uh, Twitter page tomorrow which shows Portugal's average defensive line from the 2018 World Cup and the current World Cup. Fernando Santos spoke recently about how he wants the side to be more expansive. It's noticeable and it's even noticeable in the data as well. So if you look at their defensive line in 2018, it's it's really low. It's really, really low. Their average defensive line is is between the halfway line and their own box, which is really low on average because that takes into account also the fact that they will be pressing on occasions and sitting back. So the average is well in their own half. Whereas in this World Cup, it's near the halfway line, which shows that they are they're pressing higher. They're not sitting deep as much. They want to win the ball as high up the pitch as possible. And I quite like that from Fernando Santos. We saw that against Switzerland. I mean, they were sensational. You know, where Brazil beat Switzerland 1-0 through an excellent Casemiro strike, Portugal thrashed Switzerland, essentially. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how Morocco deal with those rotations because players like Guerrero will drift inside of the half space and then the winger will stay out wide and then sometimes the winger will come inside and Guerrero will stay left or Diogo Dalla will go inside or stay wide. They're constantly rotating constantly asking questions of the opposition's backline. Morocco, who have conceded just one goal this whole tournament, which was from themselves, as I touched on earlier, you know, you essentially have one of the best attacks versus the best defence. And it's it's going to make for a really interesting game tactically. And I'm looking forward to seeing how Morocco answer those questions from Portugal, as well as ask questions of their own. Because while we criticised Spain after the game, Morocco didn't, I think they finished with an XG 0.53 after 120 minutes. It really isn't good. You know, over 120 minutes of football, you've asked very little questions of the Spanish defence, essentially. So how are you going to try and beat Portugal, especially if Portugal go 1-0 up? How are Morocco going to answer that? So it's, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this pans out. But we will move on to the last game of the quarterfinals, which is arguably the biggest I'd imagine that I suppose it's probably with more quality than the Netherlands and Argentina, albeit Messi's in that game. So maybe that's that takes them over the edge. But it is England versus France. Gareth Soke has a massive point to prove here. In the Euros, they got to the finals. In the 2018 World Cup, they got to the semi-finals. So far, under Soke at World Cups, they've beaten uh, Tunisia, Panama, Colombia, Sweden, Iran, Wales, and Senegal. Uh, with the fullest respect to all of those nations, they're games you would expect England to win. This isn't. They're now the underdogs in this match. Lucas, who are the favourites in this game then in the eyes of the better American before we talk about kind of the in-depth tactics that we, we can expect? There's a small advantage to to France in the eyes of the markets. It's 2.45 on average. Is that because they're champions? I think in the market's prices, they are more like updated than this. They always mm -hmm. reflect the very last performances, the very last injuries. But uh, indirectly, I think it reflects that because if you can, if you don't win another World Cup in a row, it's not the end of the world. Nobody really can, you know, force you to do that. I guess 
only in Brazil there was this amazing, you know, incredible pressure to win World Cups in a row. And when it didn't happen in 1998, it was a major frustration here. So it was like a, a generation that was considered a massive failure. So I guess that uh, the, the, the result here is France won't feel that much pressure, mm-hmm. while England is still a generation that needs to prove, you know, that they are worth something silverware-wise, which hasn't happened. It almost happened against Italy in the Euros. So I guess that there are good elements to both teams, but this pressure is a negative factor to England, in my opinion. And uh, even Southgate being less experienced than the Champ is also a factor here. And I see some stuff in France that I don't see in any team. Personally, if you ask me, France is the favorite team to win the World Cup itself. Because uh, the way it, it is a balanced team in terms of all sectors, the fact that it could overcome key injuries with Benzema and, you know, one of the Hernandez brothers, which might not be, you know, that talented, but it, the way he was being used by the Champ was important. He, he kind of had to change the way they defended after that. So I, I see France as a solid team. I see Mbappé on fire and able to even penetrate the box in a way he can become a striker and score with a header like he did already in the World Cup. So Against Australia, I see, yeah. Yeah, a mixture of experience, um, you know, a balanced team and a little amount of pressure that even Brazil doesn't have in this World Cup. So I, I believe France is a little bit of a favor and that's fair. Well, France have already broken a very uh, damning streak recently. I'll ask you a series of three questions. When was the last... What was the last World Cup knockout game that Italy won? Well, sorry, I didn't get the question. What was the last World Cup knockout game that Italy won? I don't remember. <laughs> it must you, be a while. The 2006 World Cup final. What was the last World Cup knockout game that Spain won? Yeah, it's been a while too. <laughs> the 2010 World Cup final. And what was the last World Cup knockout game that Germany won? 2014? The 2014 World Cup final. <laughs> it's, it's, that's an awful streak for the last three champions prior to 2018. France have already broken that deadlock by beating Poland. And if they beat England, again, I agree with you. I actually think they are favourites to win the tournament. They've looked sensational. And again, I have a tweet going out tomorrow. It's already up on LinkedIn, I believe, at the minute, about France's um, XG. They've already beaten their XG from 2018 with three fewer games. And they've already scored the same amount of non-penalty goals as in 2018. Didier Deschamps, and, and we spoke about this yesterday, or two days ago, apologies, where we spoke about how managers should be maybe only given one term because things go stale. Deschamps has managed to find a way to completely renovate France's style of play to make it non-stale, essentially, because they're so good now in attack. They always were good in attack, but they they were hesitant to attack, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Now they look electric. I think one key tactical area I'm looking to, well, I'll be watching out for in the game, is how do two sides deal with each other's counterattacks? Because England, 
against Senegal. They had 62% of the ball, but two of their goals came from counter-attacking situations. England have looked electric on the break, and I think it's quite an underrated characteristic of Southgate's sides since he's been in charge, really. And France have always been good in transition. Again, against Poland, you saw it on Sunday. The second goal, they were on the break. They managed to isolate Poland's three central defenders, Usman Dembele, Mbappe, and Giroud made a run down the middle. Giroud brought two of the central defenders with him with his run. Dembele cut inside, slipped into Mbappe, and he hammered it home at the near post of Wojciech Szczesny. So, transitions are certainly going to be, I suppose, a way that if they can control each other's transitions, they may be able to snag a win here. Lucas, I, I, I suppose the best way to wrap up the podcast is to ask you, who do you think of the eight teams, in your own opinion, without looking at the betting market? And obviously, you will always have one eye on the betting market. Who do you think the last four teams will be? Well, you know, I believe if you go with a logic, you know, reasoning, Netherlands, Brazil, France, and Portugal. But uh, I believe the games that are more likely to cause surprises in this, well, essentially, I believe that all underdogs have a decent chance of progressing here, Netherlands, Croatia, and uh, Morocco. So I believe that the only big favorite, no, it's not even a big favorite in terms of numbers, but the, the one that I truly agree. And if I had a free bet, I would go with, it would be friends. But as I said, I have some faith on the Netherlands and the way they are in the betting markets. I, I believe it's an interesting bet. I I tend to be able to see the flaws of Brazil because of the way I followed them. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if Croatia could make it. And Morocco was already a surprise inside. They have no pressure to go forward. And uh, Portugal is, is a bit complicated, in my opinion, because you have a situation right now that you don't know if you're going to see Portugal from the game against Switzerland or if it's going to be Portugal that almost, you know, dropped points against Ghana in a, in a, in a moment of, uh, let's say, not chaos yeah not much attention in the very Mm. end of the game in in the the group stage so i I believe you know it was impressive the atmosphere in the media when it was announced that ronaldo was going to be benched i almost didn't watch the game when that happened because it felt so weird i mean the the beautiful thing about portugal is expecting to see if some magic will happen with Mm. ronaldo and like I believe that, uh, yeah, France, Portugal, Brazil, and, and uh, Argentina, Northern Netherlands are, are the most natural answers. But you never know. I think we, it was a, an already beautiful cup in terms of surprises. Well, just like the last 16, the quarterfinals may be the last time we ever see Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo for their nations at a World Cup. Lucas. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this chat, of course. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in on Saturday as we review the games between Croatia and Brazil and the Netherlands and Argentina. So make sure to check back in for that. And please share the podcast too, as it really helps us grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now.